Chapter Three, Part One of An Essay on the Trial by Jury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. Trial by Jury by Lysander Spooner. Chapter Three, Part One. Additional Proofs of the Rights and Duties of Jurors If any evidence, extraneous to the history and language of Magna Carta, were needed to prove that, by that chapter which guarantees the trial by jury, all was meant that has now been ascribed to it, and that the legislation of the king was to be of no authority with the jury beyond that which they chose to allow it, and that the juries were to limit the punishments to be inflicted, we should find that evidence in various sources, such as the laws, customs, and characters of their ancestors on the continent, and of the northern Europeans generally, in the legislation and customs that immediately succeeded Magna Carta, in the oaths that have at different times been administered to jurors, etc., etc. This evidence can be exhibited here but partially, to give it all would require too much space and labor. Section 1. Weakness of the Regal Authority. Hughes, in his preface to his translation of Horne's Mirror of Justices, a book written in the time of Edward I, 1272 to 1307, giving a concise view of the laws of England generally, says, Although in the Saxons' time I find the usual words of the acts then to have been edictum, edict, constitutio, statute, little mention being made of the commons, yet I further find that tum demum leges vim et vigorum habuerunt, cum fuerunt non modo institutsi sed firmatsi approbatione communitatis. The laws had force and vigor only when they were not only enacted, but confirmed by the approval of the community. The Mirror of Justices itself also says, Chapter 1, Section 3, in speaking of the first constitutions of the ancient kings, Many ordinances were made by many kings, until the time of the king that now is, Edward I. The which ordinances were abused, were not used by many, nor very current, because they were not put in writing, and certainly published. Mirror of Justices, page 6. Hallam says, The Franks, Lombards, and Saxons seem alike to have been jealous of judicial authority, and averse to surrendering what concerned every man's private right out of the hands of his neighbors and equals. First Middle Ages, 271. The judicial authority here spoken of was the authority of the kings, who at that time united the office of both legislators and judges, and not of a separate department of government, called the judiciary, like what has existed in more modern times. Note. Hale says, The trial by jury of twelve men was a usual trial among the Normans, in most suits, especially in assizes, et juris utrum, 
First Hale's History of the Common Law, 219. This was in Normandy, before the conquest of England by the Normans. See ditto, page 218. Crabbe says, It cannot be denied that the practice of submitting causes to the decision of twelve men was universal among all the northern tribes of Europe, from the very remotest antiquity. Crabbe's History of the English Law, page 32. End footnote. Hume says, the government of the Germans, and that of all the northern nations who established themselves on the ruins of Rome, was always extremely free, and those fierce people, accustomed to independence and inured to arms, were more guided by persuasion than authority, in the submission which they paid to their princes. The military despotism which had taken place in the Roman Empire, and which, previously to the eruption of those conquerors, had sunk the genius of men, and destroyed every noble principle of science and virtue, was unable to resist the vigorous efforts of a free people. And Europe, as from a new epoch, rekindled her ancient spirit, and shook off the base servitude to arbitrary will and authority under which she had so long labored. The free constitutions then established, however impaired by the encroachments of succeeding princes, still preserve an air of independence and legal administration, which distinguish the European nations. And if that part of the globe maintains sentiments of liberty, honor, equity, and valor, superior to the rest of mankind, it owes these advantages chiefly to the seeds implanted by those generous barbarians. The Saxons, who subdued Britain as they enjoyed great liberty in their own country, obstinately retained that invaluable possession in their new settlement, and they imported into this island the same principles of independence, which they had inherited from their ancestors. The chieftains, for such they were, more than kings or princes, who commanded them in those military expeditions, still possessed a very limited authority, and as the Saxons exterminated, rather than subdued, ancient inhabitants, they were, indeed, transplanted into a new territory, but preserved unaltered all their civil and military institutions. The language was pure Saxon, even the names of places which often remain while the tongue entirely changes were almost all affixed by the conquerors the manners and customs were wholly german and the same picture of a fierce and bold liberty which is drawn by the masterly pen of tacitus will suit those founders of the english government the king so far from being invested with arbitrary power was only considered as the first among the citizens his authority depended more on his personal qualities than on his station. He was even so far on a level with the people, that a stated price was fixed for his head, and a legal fine was levied upon his murderer, which, though proportionate to his station, and superior to that paid for the life of a subject, was a sensible mark of his subordination to the community. First Hume, Appendix 1 Stuart says, The Saxons brought along with them into Britain their own customs, language, and civil institutions. Free in Germany, they renounced not their independence, when they had conquered. 
proud from victory, and with their swords in their hands, would they surrender their liberties to a private man? Would temporary leaders, limited in their powers and unprovided in resources, ever think to usurp an authority over warriors, who considered themselves as their equals, were impatient of control, and attached with devoted zeal to their privileges? Or would they find leisure to form resolutions, or opportunities to put them in practice, amidst the tumult and confusion of those fierce and bloody wars, which their nations first waged with the Britons, and then engaged in among themselves? Sufficiently flattered in leading the armies of their countrymen, the ambition of commanders could as little suggest such designs as the liberty of the people could submit to them. The conquerors of Britain retained their independence, and this island saw itself again in the free state in which the Roman arms had discovered it. The same firmness of character and generosity of manners, which, in general, distinguished the Germans, were possessed in an eminent degree by the Saxons, and while we endeavor to unfold their political institutions, we must perpetually turn our observation to that masterly picture in which the Roman historian has described these nations. In the woods of Germany shall we find the principles which directed the state of land in the different kingdoms of Europe, and there shall we find the foundation of those ranks of men, and of those civil arrangements, which the barbarians everywhere established, and which the English alone have had the good fortune, or the spirit, to preserve. Stuart on the Constitution of England, page 59-61. Kings they, the Germans, respected as the first magistrates of the state, but the authority possessed by them was narrow and limited. Ditto, page 134. Did he, the king, at any time, relax his activity and martial ardor, did he employ his abilities to the prejudice of his nation, or fancy he was superior to the laws, the same power which raised him to honor, humbled and degraded him. The customs and counsels of his country pointed out to him his duty, and if he infringed on the former, or disobeyed the latter, a fierce people set aside his authority." His long hair was the only ornament he affected, and to be foremost to attack an enemy was his chief distinction. Engaged in every hazardous expedition, he was a stranger to repose. And, rivaled by half the heroes of his tribe, he could obtain but little power. Anxious and watchful for the public interest, he felt every moment his dependence, and gave proofs of his submission. He attended the general assembly of his nation, and was allowed the privilege to harangue at first. But the arts of persuasion, though known and respected by a rude people, were unequally opposed to the prejudices and passions of men. Ditto, page 135-6. to six. The authority of a Saxon monarch was not more considerable. The Saxons submitted not to the arbitrary rule of princes. They administered an oath to their sovereigns, which bound them to acknowledge the laws, and to defend the rights of church and people, and if they forgot this obligation, they forfeited their office. In both countries a price was affixed on kings, a fine expiated their murderer, as well as that of the meanest citizen, and the smallest violation of ancient usage, or the least step toward tyranny, 
was always dangerous, and often fatal to them. Ditto, page 139-40. to 40. They were not allowed to impose taxes on the kingdom. Ditto, page 146. Like the German monarchs, they deliberated in the general assembly of the nation, but their legislative authority was not much respected, and their assent was considered in no better light than as a form. This, however, was their chief prerogative, and they employed it to acquire an ascendant in the state. To art and insinuation they turned, as their only resource, and flattered a people whom they could not awe. But address, and the abilities to persuade, were a weak compensation for the absence of real power. They declared war, it is said, and made peace. In both cases, however, they acted as the instruments of the state, and put in execution the resolutions which its councils had decreed. If, indeed, an enemy had invaded the kingdom, and its glory and its safety were concerned, the great lords took the field at the call of their sovereign. But had a sovereign declared war against a neighboring state, without requiring their advice, or if he meant to revenge by arms an insult offered to him by a subject, a haughty and independent nobility refused their assistance. These they considered as the quarrels of the king and not of the nation and in all such emergencies he could only be assisted by his retainers and dependents. Ditto, page 147-8. to Nor must we imagine that the Saxon, any more than the German monarchs, succeeded each other in lineal descent, or that they disposed of the crown at their pleasure. Note. The people, who in every general council or assembly could oppose and dethrone their sovereigns, were in little dread of their encroachments on their liberties. And kings, who found sufficient employment in keeping possession of their crowns, would not likely attack the more important privileges of their subjects. End footnote. In both countries, the free election of the people filled the throne, and their choice was the only rule by which princes reigned. The secession, accordingly, of their kings was often broken and interrupted, and their depositions were frequent and groundless. The will of a prince, whom they had long respected, and the favor they naturally transferred to his descendant, made them often advance him to the royal dignity. But the crown of his ancestor he considered as the gift of the people, and neither expected nor claimed it as a right. Ditto, page 151-153. In Germany, it was the business of the great to command in war, and in peace they distributed justice. The princes in Germany were earls in England. The great contended in both countries in the number of their retainers, and in that splendor and magnificence which are so alluring to a rude people. And though they joined to set bounds to regal power, they were often animated against each other with the fiercest hatred. To a proud and impatient nobility it seemed little and unsuiting to give or accept compositions for the injuries they committed or received, and their vassals, adopting their resentment and passions, war and bloodshed alone could terminate their quarrels. What necessarily resulted from their situation in society was continued as a privilege, 
and the great, in both countries, made war, of their private authority on their enemies. The Saxon earls even carried their arms against their sovereigns, and, surrounded with retainers, or secure in fortresses and castles, they despised their resentment, and defied their power. The judges of the people, they presided in both countries in courts of law. Note. This office was afterwards committed to sheriffs, but even while the court was held by the lord, the lord was not judge, but the paris, peers, only. Gilbert on the Court of Exchequer, 61-2. to End footnote. The particular districts over which they exerted their authority were marked out in Germany by the Council of the State, and in England their jurisdiction extended over the fiefs and other territories they possessed. All causes, both civil and criminal, were tried before them, and they judged, except in cases of the utmost importance, without appeal. They were even allowed to grant pardon to criminals, and to correct by their clemency the rigors of justice. Nor did the sovereign exercise any authority in their lands. In these his officers formed no courts, and his writ was disregarded. They had officers, as well as the king, who collected their revenues and added to their greatness, and the inhabitants of their lands they distinguished by the name of subjects. But to attend the general assembly of their nation was the chief prerogative of the German and Saxon princes, and as they consulted the interest of their country, and deliberated concerning matters of state, so in the king's court, of which also they were members, they assisted to pronounce judgment in the complaints and appeals which were lodged in it. Ditto, page 158 to 165. Henry says, Nothing can be more evident than this important truth, that our Anglo-Saxon kings were not absolute monarchs, but that their powers and prerogatives were limited by the laws and customs of the country. Our Saxon ancestors had been governed by limited monarchs in their native seats on the continent, and there is not the least appearance or probability that they relinquished their liberties and submitted to absolute government in their new settlements on this island. It is not to be imagined that men, whose reigning passion was the love of liberty, would willingly resign it, and their new sovereigns, who had been their fellow-soldiers, had certainly no power to compel them to such resignation. Third Henry's History of Great Britain 358. Mackintosh says, The Saxon chiefs, who were called kings, originally acquired power by the same natural causes which have gradually, and everywhere, raised a few men above their fellows. They were, doubtless, more experienced, more skillful, more brave, or more beautiful than those who followed them. A king was powerful in war by the luster of his arms and the obvious necessity of obedience. His influence and peace fluctuated with his personal character. In the progress of usage, his power became more fixed and more limited. It would be very unreasonable to suppose that the northern Germans who had conquered England had so far changed their characteristic habits from the age of Tacitus, that the victors became slaves, 
and that their generals were converted into tyrants. Mackintosh's History of England, Chapter 2, 45, Lardner's Cabinet Encyclopedia, 73-4. Rapin, on his Discourse on the Origin and Nature of the English Constitution, says, There are but two things the Saxons did not think proper to trust their kings with, for, being of like passions with other men, they might very possibly abuse them, namely, the power of changing the laws enacted by consent of king and people, and the power of raising taxes at pleasure. From these two articles sprung numberless branches concerning the liberty and property of the subject, which the king cannot touch, without breaking the constitution, and they are the distinguishing character of the English monarchy. The prerogatives of the crown, and the rights and privileges of the people, flowing from the two forementioned articles, are the ground of all the laws that from time to time have been made by unanimous consent of king and people. The English government consists in the strict union of the king's prerogatives with the people's liberties. But when kings arose, as some there were, that aimed at absolute power by changing the old and making new laws at pleasure, by imposing illegal taxes on the people, this excellent government being, in a manner, dissolved by these destructive measures, confusion and civil wars ensued, which some very wrongfully ascribed to the fickle and restless temper of the English. Rappin's Preface to His History of England Hallam says that among the Saxons, the royal authority was weak. Second Middle Ages, 403. But although the king himself had so little authority that it cannot be supposed for a moment that his laws were regarded as imperative by the people, it has nevertheless been claimed in modern times by some who seem determined to find or make a precedent for the present legislative authority of Parliament, that his laws were authoritative, when assented to, by the Witnagamote, or assembly of wise men, that is, the bishops and barons. But this assembly evidently had no legislative power whatever. The king would occasionally invite the bishops and barons to meet him for consultation on public affairs, simply as a council, and not as a legislative body. Such as saw fit to attend did so. If they were agreed upon what ought to be done, the king would pass a law accordingly, and the barons and bishops would then return and inform the people orally what laws had been passed, and use their influence with them to induce them to conform to the law of the king, and the recommendation of the council. And the people, no doubt, were much more likely to accept a law of the king, if it had been approved by this council, than if it had not. But it was still only a law of the king, which they obeyed or disregarded according to their own notions of expediency. The numbers who usually attended this council were too small to admit of the supposition that they had any legislative authority whatever to impose laws upon the people against their will. Lingard says, It was necessary that the king should obtain the assent of these, the members of the Witina Gamot, to all legislative enactments, because without their acquiescence and support, it was impossible to carry them into execution. To many charters, laws, we have the signatures of the Witten. 
they seldom exceed thirty in number, they never amount to sixty. First Lingard, 486. It is ridiculous to suppose that the assent of such an assembly gave any authority to the laws of the king, or had any influence in securing obedience to them, otherwise than by way of persuasion. If this body had had any real legislative authority, such as is accorded to legislative bodies of the present day, they would have made themselves at once the most conspicuous portion of the government, and would have left behind them abundant evidence of their power, instead of the evidence simply of their assent to a few laws passed by the king. More than this, if this body had had any real legislative authority, they would have constituted an aristocracy, having in conjunction with the king absolute power over the people, assembling voluntarily, merely on the invitation of the king, deputed by nobody but themselves, representing nobody but themselves, responsible to nobody but themselves, their legislative authority, if they had had any, would of necessity have made the government the government of an aristocracy merely, and the people slaves, of course. And this would necessarily have been the picture that history would have given us of the Anglo-Saxon government, and of Anglo-Saxon liberty. The fact that the people had no representation in this assembly, and the further fact that through their juries alone they nevertheless maintained that noble freedom, the very tradition of which, after the substance of the thing itself has ceased to exist, has constituted the greatest pride and glory of the nation to this day, prove that this assembly exercised no authority which juries of the people acknowledged, except at their own discretion. Note The opinion expressed in the text that the Witten had no legislative authority is corroborated by the following authorities. From the fact that the new laws passed by the king and the Witten were laid before the shire moat, county court, we should be almost justified in the inference that a second sanction was necessary before they could have the effect of law in that particular county. Dunham's Middle Ages, Section 2, B2, Chapter 1. 57, Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia, 53. The second sanction required to give the legislation of the king and Witten the effect of law was undoubtedly, I think, as a general thing, the sanction of a jury. I know of no evidence whatever that laws were ever submitted to popular vote in the county courts, as this author seems to suppose possible. Another mode sometimes resorted to for obtaining the sanction of the people to the laws of the Witten, was, it seems, to persuade the people themselves to swear to observe them. Mackintosh says, The preamble of the laws of the Witten speak of the infinite number of liegemen who attended as only applauding the measures of the assembly, but this applause was neither so unimportant to the success of the measures nor so precisely distinguished from a share in legislation as those who read history with a modern eye might imagine. It appears that under Athelstan expedients were resorted to, 
to obtain a consent to the law from great bodies of the people in their districts, which their numbers rendered impossible in a national assembly. That monarch appears to have sent commissioners to hold shiregemotes, or county meetings, where they proclaimed the laws made by the king and his counsellors, which, being acknowledged and sworn to at these folk motes, meetings of the people, became, by their assent, completely binding on the whole nation. Mackintosh's History of England, Chapter 2, 45, Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia, 75. End footnote. There is not a more palpable truth in the history of Anglo-Saxon government than that stated in the introduction of Gilbert's History of the Common Pleas. Page 31. Viz. That the county and hundred courts, to which should have been added the other courts in which juries sat, the courts baron and court leet, in those times were the real and only parliaments of the kingdom. And why were they the real and only parliaments of the kingdom? Solely because, as will be hereafter shown, the juries in those courts tried causes on their intrinsic merits according to their own ideas of justice, irrespective of the laws agreed upon by kings, priests, and barons, and whatever principles they uniformly, or perhaps generally, enforced, and none others, became practically the law of the land as matter of course. Note. Hallam says, It was, however, to the county court that an English freeman chiefly looked for the maintenance of his civil rights. Second Middle Ages, 392. Also, this, the county court, was the great constitutional judicature in all questions of civil rights. Ditto, 395. Also, the liberties of these Anglo-Saxon thanes were chiefly secured, next to their swords and free spirits, by the inestimable right of deciding civil and criminal suits in their own county courts. Ditto 399. End footnote. Finally, on this point, conclusive proof that the legislation of the king was of little or no authority is found in the fact that the kings enacted so few laws. If their laws had been received as authoritative in the manner that legislative enactments are at this day, they would have been making laws continually. Yet the codes of the most celebrated kings are very small, and were little more than compilations of immemorial customs. The Code of Alfred would not fill twelve pages of the Statute Book of Massachusetts, and was little or nothing else than a compilation of the laws of Moses and the Saxon customs, evidently collected from considerations of convenience, rather than enacted on the principle of authority. The Code of Edward the Confessor would not fill twenty pages of the Statute Book of Massachusetts, and, says Blackstone, seems to have been no more than a new edition, or fresh promulgation of Alfred's Code, or Doom Book, with such additions and improvements as the experience of a century and a half suggested. First Blackstone, 66. Note. 
Alfred may, in one sense, be called the founder of these laws, the Saxon, for until his time they were an unwritten code, but he expressly says, that I, Alfred, collected the good laws of our forefathers into one code, and also I wrote them down, which is a decisive fact in the history of our laws well worth noting. Introduction to Gilbert's History of the Common Pleas, page 2, and note. Kellum says, Let us consult our own lawyers and historians, and they will tell us that Alfred, Edgar, and Edward the Confessor were the great compilers and restorers of the English laws. Kellum's preliminary discourse to the laws of William the Conqueror, page 12. Appendix to Kellum's Dictionary of the Norman Language. He, Alfred, also, like another Theodosius, collected the various customs that he found dispersed in the kingdom, and reduced and digested them into one uniform system, or code of laws, in his Sombech, or Liber Judicialis, judicial book. This he compiled for the use of the court baron, hundred and county court, the court leet, and the sheriff's torn, tribunals which he established for the trial of all causes, civil and criminal, in the very districts wherein the complaints arose. Fourth Blackstone, 4.11. Alfred himself says, Hence I, King Alfred, gathered these together, and commanded many of those to be written down which our forefathers observed, those which I liked, and those which I did not like, by the advice of my witten, I threw aside. For I durst not venture to set down in writing over many of my own, since I knew not what among them would please those that should come after us. But those which I met with, either of the days of me, my kinsmen, or of Atha, king of Mercia, or of Ethelbert, who was the first of the English kings who received baptism, those which appeared to me the justice, I have collected and abandoned the others. Then I, Alfred, king of the West Saxons, showed these to all my witten, and they said that they were all willing to observe them. Laws of Alfred, translated by R. Price, prefixed to Mackintosh's History of England, Volume 1, 45, Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia. King Edward projected and begun what his grandson, King Edward the Confessor, afterwards completed, viz., one uniform digest or bodies of law to be observed throughout the whole kingdom, being probably no more than a revival of King Alfred's code, with some improvements suggested by necessity and experience, particularly the incorporating of some of the British, or rather, Mercian customs, and also such of the Danish customs as were reasonable and approved into the West Saxon law, which was still the groundwork of the whole. And this appears to be the best supported and most plausible conjecture, for certainty is not to be expected. Of the rise and original of that admirable system of maxims and unwritten customs, which is now known by the name of the common law, as extending its authority universally over all the realm, and which is doubtless of Saxon parentage. Fourth Blackstone, 412.
by the lex terrae and lex reine is understood the laws of edward the confessor confirmed and enlarged as they were by william the conqueror and this constitution or code of laws is what even to this day are called the common law of the land introduction to gilbert's history of the common pleas page twenty two note End footnote. The code of William the Conqueror, note, not the conqueror of the English people, as the friends of liberty maintain, but only of Harold the Usurper. See Hell's History of the Common Law, Chapter 5. End footnote. Would fill less than seven pages of the statute book of Massachusetts, and most of the laws contained in it are taken from the laws of the preceding kings and especially of Edward the Confessor, whose laws William swore to observe, but few of his own being added. The codes of the other Saxon and Norman kings were, as a general rule, less voluminous even than those that have been named, and probably did not exceed them in originality. Note. For all these codes, see Wilkins' Laws of the Anglo-Saxons being regulations adapted to the existing institutions the anglo-saxon statutes are concise and technical alluding to the law which was then living and in vigor rather than defining it the same clauses and chapters are often repeated word for word in the statutes of subsequent kings showing that enactments which bear the appearance of novelty are merely declaratory Consequently, the appearance of a law, seemingly for the first time, is by no means to be considered as a proof that the matter which it contains is new, nor can we trace the progress of the Anglo-Saxon institutions with any degree of certainty, by following the dates of the statutes in which we find them first noticed. All arguments founded on the apparent chronology of the subjects included in the laws are liable to great fallacies. Furthermore, a considerable portion of the Anglo-Saxon law was never recorded in writing. There can be no doubt but that the rules of inheritance were well established and defined, yet we have not a single law, and hardly a single document from which the course of the descent of land can be inferred. Positive proof cannot be attained of the commencement of any institution because the first written law relating to it may possibly be merely confirmatory or declaratory. Neither can the non-existence of any institution be inferred from the absence of direct evidence. Written laws were modified and controlled by customs, of which no trace can be discovered until after the lapse of centuries, although those usages must have been in constant vigor during the long interval of silence. First Palgrave's Rise and Progress of the English Commonwealth, 56, 9. End footnote. The Norman princes, from William the Conqueror to John, I think without exception, bound themselves, and, in order to maintain their thrones, were obliged to bind themselves to observe the ancient laws and customs. In other words, the lex terre or common law of the kingdom. Even Magna Carta contains hardly anything other than this same common law, with some new securities for its observance. 
How is this abstinence from legislation on the part of the ancient kings to be accounted for, except on the supposition that the people would accept, and juries enforce, few or no new laws enacted by their kings? Plainly it can be accounted for in no other way. In fact, all history informs us that anciently the attempts of the kings to introduce or establish new laws met with determined resistance from the people, and generally resulted in failure. Nolamus legis Angliae mutari. We will that the laws of England be not changed, was a determinate principle with the Anglo-Saxons, from which they seldom departed, up to the time of Magna Carta, and indeed, until long after. Note. Rapin says, The customs now practiced in England are, for the most part, the same as the Anglo-Saxons brought with them from Germany. Rapin's Dissertation on the Government of the Anglo-Saxons, Volume 2, Oxford Edition, page 138. See Callum's Discourse Before Named. End footnote. End of chapter 3, part 1.